such a big part of managing fear is differentiating between the rational fears and the irrational fears, because there are a lot of things in climbing that you should be afraid of because you can die while climbing and it's totally healthy and appropriate to be afraid of that. But then there are also tons of irrational fears. And those are the types of fears that you need to learn how to just put aside. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Thank you so much for being here. Today we're chalking up for a chat with Alex Honnold. Now Alex is a relatively unknown up-and-comer in the world of rock climbing, so allow me to share some of his accomplishments. He's the only human to free solo El Cap, a feat so incredible it would be unbelievable if it hadn't been so beautifully captured in the Oscar-winning documentary Free Solo. Alex also holds the El Cap speed record on the nose with his bromance Tommy Caldwell, with whom he's completed numerous envelope-pushing adventures such as the Fitz Traverse, the Yosemite Triple Crown, and the Cuddle. He's so damn skilled, controlled, and dominant on big walls and heady climbs, one wonders if he even knows what struggle is. Well, we're about to find out. Now, I was lucky enough to spend a day climbing with Alex along with Jordan Cannon not too long ago, and it was awesome. So I'm going to share a little bit more about that after the interview. Now, beyond climbing, Alex is the founder of the Honnold Foundation, whose mission is to support solar energy for a more equitable world. Alex shares the nonprofit's humble beginnings, where it's heading, and why we should all embrace solar now or risk being the last house in the neighborhood without solar panels while everyone else makes fun of you. This chat covers a lot of new territory, and I'm really psyched for you to check it out. The official climbing nutrition sponsor of the struggle is Fizzy Vantage. Y'all, I'm a huge fan of this company because their science-backed products just work. One of my favorites is their Supercharged Collagen, which is a research-based, athlete-proven supplement to keep your fingers strong and healthy, and you know how important that is. Supercharged collagen is used daily by dozens of professional climbers as well as thousands of regular climbers like you and me. You guys, this is not your grandmother's hair and nails support collagen powder. It was developed for climbers, by climbers, and simply put, it'll allow you to train harder and stay healthier. Some VisiVantage pros call it their finger food, and I totally agree. I love it, and I've definitely seen the results. I simply mix a scoop into my morning caffeine or shake it up before a workout, and boom, I'm getting that fizzy vantage. Hit that link in your show notes or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full-price nutrition order at fizzyvantage.com. Y'all, it's really the best stuff out there. Check it out, fizzyvantage.com. The struggle's carbon neutral thanks to a partnership with, you guessed it, the Honnold Foundation, whose mission is to support solar energy for a more equitable world. Now, I've been a monthly donor for a long time because their impact is measurable and meaningful. You're going to hear a lot more about that from the eponymous man himself in this episode, and I hope I just used the word eponymous correctly. Swing by honnoldfoundation.org to learn about all the incredible things they're doing. Alex will tell us more about it later in this interview, and planet Earth will thank you. And lastly, y'all, after my chat with Alex, stick around for a couple minutes to hear my takeaways and learn how you can score some swag from the show. All right, leave that pesky rope behind and get ready for a no-big-deal chat with Alex Honnold. Hey, Alex. Welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show. Hey, Ryan. Let's just dive right in, man. I don't want to waste any time. What does the word struggle mean to you through the lens of climbing? 
I would actually not really think of anything in climbing as a struggle because I love climbing and I climbing for me is fun and play and all that. But I think objectively, like any outside observer would think that I spent my whole life struggling as a climber. You spend most of your time failing, you're, you know, climbing or training five or six days a week. For me, it's been 25 years of like nonstop grinding as a climber. And it's fine because I love it and it's like to do it every day. But I think that if somebody else was doing the same thing, they'd be like, this is a grind. Well, especially with these huge suffer fests that you have been known to do from time to time, often with um, Tommy, like most recently the cuddle, but also the Fitz Traverse and these huge link-ups in Yosemite and to the outside observer, at least would seem like a huge struggle. That's exactly my point is, I mean, those are all very hard things that they're challenging, they're physically uncomfortable, but I wouldn't call them a struggle necessarily, even though it's occasionally type two fun, you know, it's not necessarily pleasurable in the moment, but afterward it is quite satisfying and you know that it will be worth it and you're still doing it by your own choice. It's still all a total joy. Great, man. Let's dig into things here. Let's focus on your training first and foremost. Where have you struggled with your training, Alex? In general, the physical side of climbing has never come that naturally to me. I'm not naturally that strong. I'm not like a gifted athlete in, a, in other ways. Actually, that, that might not be fair. I think Compared to the broader human public, I probably am a gifted athlete, but compared to elite climbers, I'm definitely not gifted in any way. Like my fingers are much weaker than all of my peers. Yeah, basically your strength, you're talking about like how, like how hard you can pull on an edge. Yeah. By pretty much any metric of finger strength, I underperform uh, relative to my peers, which I manage with, you know, good technique, good footwork, everything else, basically like good execution. I would say I'm a pretty good climber in general, but I'm not that strong of a climber, certainly not relative to the level at which I climb. In theory, I should be focusing more on the physical side and I kind of am. I mean, um, in, in particular the last several months, I've been, uh, really emphasizing the physical side a little more and I have actually been feeling a little stronger. And that's been just as a result of the training that you've been doing recently. I mean, I've dabbled in, in physical training for climbing on and off for the entire 25 years that I've climbed. It's just that when I was younger, there was a lot less known about it. And I was training in different ways that are, that are, that were probably less useful. But th that said, basically for me, physical training and climbing is always a bit of an uphill battle. That is a bit of a struggle. Hey, look at that. We got you to say struggle. All right. <laughs> so um, what does that look like then? If you say your finger strength isn't on par with what you feel it should be based on your peers or where you feel you should be at, is, is that the bulk of your focus then? I mean, part of the problem for me is that I climb full time. And so, you know, anytime you do a training program, it's generally focused around the training. So you basically rest for your training days. And, and if you're trying to train finger strength, you basically should be rested for your finger strength sessions. So you basically should be prioritizing your whole life to revolve around hangboard sessions, which for me is just not, it's just not acceptable. Basically, I, you know, like I'm willing to hangboard, I'm willing to work hard as a climber, I'm willing to do all the training, but it's realistically. I want to climb more than I want to hangboard. And right now, for example, I worked with the Lattice guys a couple of years ago, and I found that incredibly helpful while I was uh, doing the free solo film tour because I didn't have access to actual rock climbing for six months. And so it was really helpful for me psychologically to have a spreadsheet, a training, or basically like to be on a program, to have some reason to get out of bed every day. Like I'm actually working towards something. Sure. And so I really enjoyed having that training program. Yeah, that's interesting to hear that from your perspective, you like that structure. I think a lot of us who are just kind of weekend warriors and we're working our jobs, taking care of our families, I think we really like that as well. We like to to know over the course of the week that we're working towards something. And so for you, what does that look like now? Kind of break down what your training looks like. Basically, I'm climbing outside three or four days a week. I'm climbing inside once a week, mostly just a moonboard, like to do some limit boulder. And then I'm doing a bunch of supplemental stuff at the house. So like some hangboarding, some one-arm pull-up stuff, and then a bunch of just core legless front levers, planks, things like that. 
basically all the like supplemental things like stretching, you know. And then on the days that you're climbing outside, are you also like, are you doing two a days? Are you climbing outside and then coming back and, and six hours later loading the fingers? Yeah, not even six hours later. I mean, often I just, um, I mean, occasionally like I'll skip my last pitch of the day at the crag. Let's say I'll skip that the random pitch that you would do is like the endurance burn or like the extra thing. And I'll save that energy and go home and do uh, a bit of a hanging session or do a bunch of, you know, pull-ups and leg lifts and things like that, which, and I, and I know that this isn't like an optimal way to train if you're trying to see finger strength gains, but it's a nice way to live. You know, it's like, I'm still getting my climbing. I feel like I'm improving. It's a nice, like it's working well for me. I've gotten into this because I'm looking at fatherhood now and I'm looking at not traveling quite as much for the next many months, basically, as, as we have a newborn. And so it makes sense to take the long, gradual approach to like steady gains. And so what's the goal? I've seen you post, at least in the past, that you're gunning for 515. Is that the focus? Yeah, I mean, like in my life, I would love to climb 515. And I kind of feel like as a professional climber, I feel like almost a slight obligation to climb 515 at some point, considering they're 16 year olds that they can manage that no problem nowadays. So yeah, that is definitely an aspiration. I wouldn't say it's a concrete goal because there's no set route and there's no time frame for it. And there's no, there's nothing obvious. There are a handful of 515s around my home in Las Vegas. But the problem though, is that a couple of them, if I did, they wouldn't be 515 because, because I'm using e-bars. Basically, it's just like, I'm, I'm doing style a little bit differently. And then the other established thing is like Jumbo Love, which is 15B, which I haven't tried, but it does seem like a bit of a jump. It seems a little daunting. <laughs> that thing looks so, gnarly. Yeah. 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 It, it, like it seems impossible. Maybe someday I'll go try. Well, like a lot of things with you, it kind of seems like no big deal on, on maybe climbing that higher grade, or at least it doesn't seem like you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself to get there quickly. So many things in climbing, like uh, stronger tendons and ligaments, you know, connection tissue takes a very long time to adapt to, to stimulus. And so... You just played the long game. Like if you can consistently grind away at something and avoid injury and basically maintain like a relatively healthy lifestyle, like you will see long-term gains and it's just slow and steady progress. Like one way to look at it is that if you can improve by one grade a year, which doesn't really feel like that much if you're training consistently, within a decade, you're climbing the hardest routes in the world, you know, which is like kind of a crazy way to think about it. You know, it's like just long, slow, steady progress. Yeah, that's something to get psyched about now that you just said that. Yeah, I mean, isn't isn't that kind of wild? That is really wild to think about. Um, and, and I do love that about climbing because you can find so much efficiency in proper technique as well, so that even as your top end power might start to decline, you can make up for that. And there's plenty of uh, people in their 50s and 60s who are crushing into the, you know, 14s. Yeah, I mean, r right now I'm climbing with a 61-year-old who's who still could climb 514. He has much stronger fingers than me, objectively. Like, he hangs with crazy amounts of weight. And he's 61. I'm sort of, like, slightly embarrassing when you're like, oh, I'm getting burnt off by the 61-year-old. But, you know, <laughs> that's uh, that's Bill Ramsey. He's, uh, he's an incredible climber. Oh, yeah. That's great. Well, that's good motivation as well. Um, okay, one more question on training, and then I'll, we'll, we'll shift gears to nutrition. And that's just on the concept of, of focusing on your weaknesses versus your strengths. And so obviously you're training up your weaknesses a lot, focusing on finger strength and some of these sport routes out at Vegas. But then like when you were preparing to solo the free rider, I, I had read that you really shifted away from that and just started focusing on uniquely what you were good at with regard to that route and, and that big wall. And so like, where does that line get drawn or, or how do you look at that concept? You know, it's not a unique idea that if you want to improve, you work on your weaknesses. If you want to perform, you play to your strengths. So I spend most of the year working on my weaknesses, like training fingers, doing all those things. But every once in a while, you want to go out and do something rad. And those are the times where you should 
cater to the things that you're just uniquely good at or the things that you're best at. Yeah, I love that. I just gave you permission to go back to Joshua Tree and do some track climbing. That's you're like, thank God I can leave their bed. That's exactly <laughs> what I needed, man. Honestly, although I I also just got eaten alive on epinephrine. So I don't know if big walls is my thing either. I, I don't know what it, it took me 12 hours to get epinephrine. I think you did, you did it in about 40 minutes. So no, at 30, uh, 34, I think or 35. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, just, just right underneath my time. Yeah. <laughs> Although in my defense, it was a party of three. So we, it took a little bit longer, but still, yeah, that, yeah, that, that, that never helps. Still 12 hours, but thank you. I appreciate that permission. The Red River Gorge has been, has been eating my lunch, but I'm really enjoying it. I've, I've come to like it. I like the nice airy falls that it now offers me. Yeah, well, that's, that's I think, one of the interesting things in climbing is that something that was a weakness, when you work on it long enough, eventually you start to see it become, like, if not a strength, then at least something that you're totally comfortable with and, and feels pretty good. And I'm actually seeing that on some of the things, like I've lived in Las Vegas long enough now, and I've been climbing on overhanging pockets all the time. And overhanging pockets used to be everything I was worst at in the world. I just couldn't couldn't really do it. And now I wouldn't necessarily say it's a strength, but it's getting close. Like it might actually be a strength soon where I'm like, you know, I feel pretty good at this. And like, it's, you know, it's just like slowly changing. All right, Alex, let's talk about nutrition now. Where have you struggled with your nutrition? I, I try not to overthink nutrition. I try to eat relatively well, nothing too crazy. I eat mostly vegetarian, but that's more for environmental reasons, just trying to minimize impact. But pretty much everything about my diet and, and nutrition in general for me is somewhat flexible. You know, I, I travel too much to be too dogmatic about it. Uh, you know, too many expeditions in various parts of the world. And then I've read a lot of nutrition books. I've read like keto books and paleo books and all kinds of vegetarian books and, and like everything. And I feel like it's worth taking it all with a grain of salt. You know, I think there's something to be learned from all of it. But I think, I don't know if you read the, the Michael Pollan book, uh, In Defense of Food. Basically, it can be summed up with, with his conclusion, eat real food, mostly plants, not too much. And you're like, that pretty much sums up my dietary approach. Try to eat real food, try to eat a lot of plants, and don't eat too much. That's a good rule to live by, you know. I can't really argue too much with that. What about any struggles, though? Is there any area of your diet that has been a challenge for you? My only real struggle with diet is just that I, I naturally have quite a sweet tooth. I think like I, I could just eat sugar nonstop all day. Like I, I love sugar. But so I basically try not to eat dessert very often. Oh, yeah. So you're, you're speaking my language here. I love sugar as well. I love donuts, especially. I need a donut sponsor. But but then how do you handle that, right? Um, is that something that you're really focused on? How, how much do you focus on your weight, for example? It's always in the back of my mind because as a professional climber, Climbing is all about strength to weight. And so it's often easier to lose a little weight than it is to get a little stronger up to a point. And you notice that when you're training in a serious way, because as you start to approach your physical limits with hangboarding, let's say, you can train a whole cycle to add two and a half pounds on, onto the amount of weight you can lift. Whereas if you get a bout of food poisoning, you can easily lose four or five pounds in, in a couple of days. And you're kind of like, man, look at those gains. But like, obviously those, that kind of thing isn't sustainable in the long term. And so he's always struggling against gravity. So I definitely think about weight all the time. But at the same time, I rarely try to cut weight, like almost never. Like actually last year, I noticed that my average weight had trended up a couple pounds. And I was like, I wonder if I'm just getting older and a little bigger. And then I was, and then I, I quit eating dessert full stop. And, uh, and I was just suddenly back to like full fighting weight. And I was kind of like, maybe I just shouldn't eat dessert anymore. And then I was, as a professional athlete, is it that big an ask to not have dessert? I was like, that seems freaking fine. And so I just haven't been eating dessert anymore. 
Oh. Nope, nope. Pass. See, I can't. This is why I can't be a professional climber, I think. Yeah. <laughs> My thing with nutrition is I'm obviously nutrition matters for a long-term healthy lifestyle, like not dying of heart disease, things like that. But I think for performance, nutrition adds such a small percentage. It's like if you nail your nutrition, you nail all that stuff, you can maybe eke out a couple extra percent. And realistically, I think that the best gains you see from nutrition are more if it contributes to you not getting sick as much. Basically, if you feel a little more energized and, and you get sick even one or two fewer times a year, then you wind up seeing long-term gains from that. All right, Alex, I want to talk about tactics now. And before we cut to the present, I want to look back a little bit because you were pretty much among the first generation of climbers who grew up in a gym or learned to climb a lot at a gym. And I wonder tactically how that formed your skill set because gyms can be pretty specific in terms of just the roots that are set or the problems that are set there. So the gym that I grew up in was pretty well-rounded. It was a, it's, it's such an old school gym that it was all hand molded plaster. So there actually were hand carved plaster cracks oh, cool. in the walls. And I actually learned how to, I learned how to aid climb in the gym as well, because I could basically tie off one end of a top rope and then rope solo on the other, on the other end of this top rope. And, and basically aid climb up these cracks in the gym. So I learned how to place gear in the gym. I learned how to aid climb in the gym. I learned how to crack climb in the gym. Oh, that's cool. You know, I was growing up in an era where the climbing gym was really seen as a way to train for climbing. And so I think that from the beginning, I always looked at climbing with a pretty holistic, like all disciplines of climbing were equally interesting in a way. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to hear that because you are like an incredibly well-rounded climber and adventurer, but just even beyond just climbing whether it's your expeditions to Antarctica or working in the jungle, it's a very well-rounded skill set. So I guess it makes sense that your gym was the starting point for that. You know, in growing up, I cared just as much about mountaineering and summoning things. And I was doing a lot of big hikes when I was younger because to me, that was an important part of climbing. It's not like I chose one discipline or another. It's like I've always been interested in all of them simultaneously. It's just that not all of them come as easily to me. It's like I'm just not as good at a lot of them. Well, I guess your specialty that would stand out to all of us, it would be soloing. And there aren't a lot of people who do it, certainly nobody at your level. And so I, I'm curious now tactically to focus the lens on how you climb differently, whether you're roped up or on a solo. Yeah, there's definitely a difference in the way I climb uh, with or without a rope. As you would expect, and not just with or without a rope, but your trad climbing versus four climbing. I'm willing to take much more risk. Not, I don't mean risk in the like risk of you know falling off and breaking my legs. I mean uh, likelihood of falling, like jumping for holds and smearing your feet on things that, that may or may not hold. Like basically when you're sport climbing, you need to take quite a bit of risk all the time. Like you have to jump to things and swing your body and try really tenuous toe hooks and things like that because otherwise you just can't really sport climb at your limits. But when you're trad climbing or soloing, you should be taking far fewer risks. <laughs> You don't want to be making any chancy moves. And I think that's actually been one of the challenges for me over the years as a climber is that I alternate between styles relatively frequently. And, and it's hard to go from absolute control on an expedition or when you're soloing or something like that to then a total riskiness as a sport climber or a boulder again. Risk isn't necessarily the right term. I need a different term for it because most people think of risk as like an expedition as being really risky. Right. You know, when you're like climbing big walls in some remote place. But what I mean is that when you're in those situations, you have to climb with a ton of control and a lot of like a wide margin of safety. Whereas when you're sport climbing, because it's fundamentally safe, you can take a lot of chance with your movements. Yeah, I get you. So like the style with which you would climb something changes based on 
the consequence of what a fall would entail uh, on that type of climbing. So obviously, if you're soloing, you're going to need to be a lot more controlled than if you're sport climbing where it's relatively safe, right? Actually, I want to sort of reframe this a little bit because we keep talking about sport climbing like it's totally safe. But my in-laws live next to us and, and they're, they're, you know, in their 60s and they love climbing and they go out all the time. But they're sport climbing on 5.5 to 5.9s in Red Rock. And it basically means that the wall is low angle and there are more features sticking out. And so for them, falling actually is dangerous. And right. the thing with climbing is that realistically, there's always some degree of risk, danger. You know, there's always consequences in climbing. The difference is, though, that some disciplines of climbing are predominantly safe where you can mostly not have to think about those kinds of things. And the other disciplines of climbing are inherently dangerous. I think free soloing or certain styles of tried climbing. And so no matter what you're doing as a climber, you should be evaluating risk. You should be thinking about it a little bit, but it's just such a bigger part of sub-disciplines. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you are switching between those disciplines, from soloing to going on an expedition, then to heading back to Vegas and working sport in Potosi and that kind of thing, what's the trick? Like, how do you switch between those different modes when it comes to your tactics? I don't really have a good trick for just switching styles. And I, I think that's a challenge. I think that's sort of a problem for me. For me, I think it just naturally comes as you start spending more time doing whatever discipline. But actually, and now that you mentioned, I'm like, maybe I should have a better way to switch back and forth. Actually, it's pretty easy for me to switch back into soloing mode. Like, it's easy for me to climb with a lot of control and certainty in my movements. That kind of comes naturally. It's much harder for me to ease back into the, like, fast climbing, jumping for holds and not caring so much. Just because that's not my 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 go-to yeah your default setting is very controlled very static yeah. three points of contact that kind of thing and then you, you yeah exactly yeah 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 my my default is uh, the leader must not fall <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like right. a 1960s track driver yeah. <laughs> all right alex let's shift to the mental game chapter here and rather than look at the kind of obvious example of soloing el cap i actually want to dive in and talk about your trip to antarctica your expedition because that looked pretty harrowing, and you've written about how scared you were there. And so through the lens of managing fear, which is something that we all as climbers have to manage uh, on some level, I just want to hear what that experience was like for you and, and how you look at fear. I, th I think my experience with fear is much the same as anybody else's. It's just that I've done it a lot more and dealt with it more. So I've been doing it a long time. I've been scared a lot. And Antarctica is a perfect example of a trip. That was very scary. You know, like I, I had to manage fear basically every climbing day. And towards the end of the trip, we got into a pretty good routine of doing a big day out and then a rest day. Because basically each of the things that we climbed would be these like all day affairs. They were harrowing. As you said, they were quite scary. And so then you spend the next day recovering both physically and mentally. And then you'd be like, oh, geez, now we have to go do it again. And then every other day we were having these sort of traumatic experiences that are quite scary but at the same time you're like you're in this incredible place with this once in a lifetime opportunity to climb new routes on new walls in this beautiful landscape you have to take advantage of it but you're just like oh but it's so scary you know on, on my rest days i want to i ate like an entire family-sized tub of nutella just like spooning nutella just all shell shock sitting in the cook tent being like anything to make me feel happiness <laughs> so, so, so gripped but just but no the climbing was very scary conrad anchor just spooning you in the tent no the uh the uh the last week or so of that trip conrad and jimmy were up on the wall uh like camping on the mountain trying to finish their first ascent of, of the largest peak in the range and so 
it meant that uh, basically, you know, the kids were left alone at home. And so that's when I really went hard on the Nutella because I was like, oh, the adults are gone. It started just like spoon Nutella and go do first sense. <laughs> that's so great. So, so mentally speaking, you know, aside from just shoveling Nutella in your mouth, which seems like a totally viable tactic and one that I would employ myself. Um, what else do you do to manage fears, whether they be rational or irrational? Basically, everybody manages fear the same way. Like if you get afraid, like once you start to experience the the physiological sensation of fear, like your pulse is elevated, your vision narrows, like your hands are sweating, like all those things. Once you're afraid, I think everybody manages that roughly the same way, which is taking some deep breaths, composing themselves, or somehow pulling it together. And that's always hard. I mean, that's hard for everybody. Basically, once you're scared, it's always difficult. I think the where you have a lot more control and what is the better strategy overall is to prepare for that fear ahead of time so that you don't reach that state of being very afraid. And that's where the the gradual expansion of your comfort zone, the sort of steady desensitization, like exposing yourself to the things that are slightly scary, but not too scary. Like basically there's a ton of things that you can do to prepare ahead of time so that you never actually experience that deep fear. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's something that's applicable to to all of us as climbers, especially in ruling out irrational mm -hmm. fears. Yeah, I mean, that's a such a big part of managing fear is differentiating between the rational fears and the irrational fears, because there are a lot of things in climbing that you should be afraid of because you can die while climbing and it's totally healthy and appropriate to be afraid of that. But then there are also tons of irrational fears, like when you're on some overhanging sport route and you're on a brand new rope and everything about the whole system is safe and perfect and wonderful and yet you still are afraid to take a fall, that's totally irrational. And those are the types of fears that you need to learn how to just put aside and just force past them. But there are a lot of fears in climbing that you shouldn't set aside. You should be, you should reevaluate all your decisions. Like I've had plenty of times in climbing when you're suddenly like, oh, I'm very afraid and I should be afraid because if I fall, I'm gonna die. And then you're left there wondering, what did I do to get me to this place? You know, should I, should I be reconsidering my life choices? Like, what am I doing? Right. And, and, and is this the time to be having that conversation with myself? Yeah. Well, that's the point of visualization and things ahead of time. So you can have those conversations with yourself beforehand so that when you get yourself into scary situations, at least you've dealt with it before. Like you, you know what the deal is. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's just dive headfirst into soloing for a minute here, if we can, because we are in the mental chapter and. I want to touch on this concept of angst soloing, which you talked a little bit about on uh, Alone in the Wall. I think you soloed um, the rainbow wall, like you were going through a breakup or you were thinking that you were going through a breakup. And so I just, this this concept of bringing emotion into a climb to help motivate, right? To, to get the psych up to do something that's pretty gnarly. Uh, how much of that plays into your climbing? I occasionally harness that to do something that I want to do anyway. It's like, all the things that I free soloed have all been routes that I want to do at some point in my life. It's just that sometimes it helps to have a little extra push. And at the other end of the spectrum, I have something like free soloing all cap, which is something I wanted to do forever. But then it helped me to have the film crew along and to have not so much like on the wall, but it helped for the process to have friends around that you could talk to about it and work on it with. It's like basically harnessing external motivation is a useful way to achieve your own goals. And if that means using angst to your benefit, it's like, sweet. I think that there's another line though, and there is a bit of a history or some essays written for climbers who are actually experiencing suicidal thoughts and things, and then go soloing because they legitimately don't care if they never die. And I've never been even remotely close to that level of, you know, psychological turmoil. Like for me, it's just a matter of like using personal drama to fuel achievements, basically. Yeah. Maybe no different than just blasting tool or rage against the machine exactly, or something like exactly exactly yeah 
No, it's exactly the same idea. It's like you turn on heavy metal loud for long enough, you're like, no, I'm ready. And then you charge up a wall. It's like, or you can think about the fact that your soon to be ex-girlfriend is moving in with some other guy and you're like, no, I'm ready. You know, it's like <laughs> e either way, you're just harnessing, you know, external motivations to to do the things that you want to do anyway. Yeah. As long as it's, um, yeah, to, with, within a limit. Yeah, uh, it's exactly. Like as long as it's used in a healthy way and all that, this is, this is all very slippery slope, dangerous terrain. I feel like I've always managed it relatively well but there are times where you just don't you're like you're willing to push a little closer to the edge you're like you know what today's the day but it's the same like many humans exhibit risk taking in different ways you know some people like go to the club and get drunk and drive home and don't care and like i mean there, there people roll the dice in their life all the time or have unprotected sex things like that you know it's like there are plenty of ways that people roll dice that are less controlled and i think maybe less intentional than some of the the crimes that i've done All right, now let's talk about things that you're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity now. And of course, that would be the environment and the Honnold Foundation, which is a partner of the podcast. We're carbon neutral. Thanks to a partnership with HF. So why don't we start there? Tell me about the Honnold Foundation. So the Honnold Foundation supports solar energy for a more equitable world. That's the official, you know, motto, slogan. But I started the Honnold Foundation 10 years ago with a vague idea that I wanted to do something useful for the environment. And with, with the added realization, there's no point in supporting environmental projects that didn't also improve standard of living, that didn't help people or human communities. People don't care about the environment if they're struggling to survive. And that's makes total sense, totally understandable. And so I didn't see any real point supporting environmental projects that didn't also help, you know, people survive. And also there are just so many environmental projects in the world that, that are win-win like that, that are like great ideas and that also really help people. And so many of those projects wound up being solar projects all the time that, that we just explicitly made it our mission to support solar because that's what we were doing anyway. Yeah, I think th this is um, an important distinction, I think, in, in something that really is what really attracted me to the Honnold Foundation. I've been a, a monthly donor for many years now, and nice. I support a lot of environmental organizations out there. I think there's no shortage of areas that need support from more sustainable agriculture and, and practices to clean water. Um, the company that I co-founded, This Saves Lives, deals with food insecurity and malnutrition. But Honnold Foundation really drew my attention because of the way that you work with communities and it's decentralized. And so I'm curious to know how that model came around and how you find the partners that you work with. So you touched on this, but, but the reason that I personally enjoy supporting energy projects is that I feel like energy underpins all these other, you know, aspects of life that, that you're mentioning. Yeah. You could support clean water, you can support agricultural product projects, you can support all kinds of things, but energy sort of underpins all of those. Basically how humans produce and use energy affects everything else that, that we have going on in, in in life and so that that's a first step for for any other kind of development and why solar as opposed to wind or hydroelectric and, and that, like what drew you to solar solar is just the most effective solution in so many places around the world there are billion people on earth without access to power right now and many of those people live in places that realistically will never see utility lines come into their villages they live in rural areas that are too remote and will never be cost effective to put power lines out to them and so one way or another, they're going to rely upon decentralized power solutions, like some kind of local power on site. And 
Yeah, it's true that wind can work in some places. There are a lot of different things that can work in different places. I think solar works everywhere and it's cheap. It's easily scalable. It's modular in an easy way. Like you can have a very small panel that supports lights for, for several homes in a village, or you can have a bunch of big panels that pump water for a well, or you can do one small panel, have some lights. And then next season, when your crop comes in, you can add a second panel and that will power your small refrigerator. So let's highlight a couple of the projects that you're working on. One domestic, one international, maybe. How about Memphis Rocks? Let's talk about that. So yeah, Memphis Rocks is a very straightforward project. And we just put a big solar array on their roof, grid tied. So they're still getting their power from the grid, though in their case, their utility is, uh, expensive and not that sweet. I mean, realistically, nowhere in the country does anyone love their utility. Nobody likes their utility. Like <laughs> utilities are regressive. And for an organization like Memphis Rocks, they're a not-for-profit that's helping their local community. It's like, why should they be wasting money on a utility bill? And so the Holland Foundation helped them put solar on their roof, which will save them. I'm actually not sure how much, but let's just say, you know, a thousand dollars a month, just as an easy round number for a utility bill. It's probably more than that because it's a big commercial building with HVAC for and sure. all that. But, but just for that, I mean, if they're saving $1,000 a month on a utility bill, you know, that's enough to hire another like part-time position or something like somebody from the local community who can work there a whole year and like help do kids programs or whatever else. And to me, that's a clear example of a win-win where it's like they are now using cleaner power. It helps green the grid. Like basically it's helping the transition renewables that the U.S. needs to achieve anyway in a way that's helping this nonprofit spend more of their own money on the projects that they actually care about, which in their case is, is enriching their community. It's like, why isn't that being done everywhere? You know, like why doesn't every school in the country have solar on it? Why don't they? I mean, what, what are the barriers to entry? The upfront cost, basically. What school district is planning for that kind of thing? Even though long-term it would save them a lot of money and it's the smart decision, but it's just not, it's not required. And so nobody's ever going out of their way to, to do a new thing unless they have to. So it's really. a way of thinking. And this but, gets back to what we were talking about, which is isn't solar and clean energy an inevitability? And so how do you, as Alex Honnold, as a celebrity, as well as the founder of the Honnold Foundation, how can you try to change the hearts and minds of, of people who haven't yet gotten to the point where they recognize that solar is the way? Yeah, I agree. I just want to shake people by the shoulders and be like, why don't you just get on board? Because like, for, for example, I have an aunt and uncle that live in Sacramento. And 10 years ago, when I got interested in this and I started the Hano Foundation, I started pushing some of my family to get involved. And, and actually at the beginning, I was separately from the work that the Hano Foundation does. I personally was putting solar on some of my family and friends' houses as a way of offsetting my yearly travel. Basically because I did the math that a one home PV system was offsetting roughly uh, over the life of the system, the same amount of carbon that I was emitting in a year of travel with all the expeditions and, and climbing travel. And so it made like a nice, easy personal calculus where if I put solar on one, one person's house, then it's covered my year of expeditions. Cool. And anyway, so I had this aunt and uncle who didn't want solar in their house because it's south facing and it would be too obvious. Like basically the front of their house faces south. And so like their neighbors would see it. And it drove me insane because the thing is, I know that by 2035, every home in their neighborhood, they live in California. So every single house will have solar on it. And eventually they're going to be the last house in their neighborhood to get solar. And I'm like, why wait to be the last if it's going to happen anyway? And especially in their case, like why not reap the economic benefits where you save a bunch of money over the time the system pays itself off. It just drives me insane. Cause I'm like, if you know the world's changing, why not embrace the change and jump in rather than drag your heels and, and wait for it to die? And so how it's do like, you, you don't have to tell me personally how you had that conversation with your family, <laughs> but 
there's a bigger conversation to be had, and that's either with our policymakers or just with the general public, because it's either going to come from demand or from from policy, right? It's a hard question. I think that I personally try to talk about the issues, post about the issues, promote renewable energy in different ways, like on the different platforms that I have. I mean, I think it's important as an individual to sort of to vote. I mean, actually to to vote for effective policy. But um, but I also think it's important to just go out and do the work. And that's really what the Hanel Foundation has been trying to do is that policy aside and, and sort of public communications aside, there's something to be said for just going out and taking the taking steps forward, you know, like implementing projects one at a time. And so the Hanel Foundation, you know, is just going out and, and doing work, you know, putting solar on people's homes and, and uh, you know, one small community, like one public building, you know, one institution like Memphis Rocks or something at a time. And just like, one of the things that I love about each project that we support through the Honda Foundation is is knowing that once you put solar on a business, it's realistically never going back. You know, like no, you know, individual home or organization is ever going to take the solar back off their roof and then go back to using coal power. Oh, yeah, that's cool. And and just, you know, the growth of the organization over the last 10 years has been really impressive. And um, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, it looks like this year, after talking with the team, y'all are giving out somewhere in the tune of two million dollars of uh, grants to to projects, and you and you're doing this open call for projects. So, why don't you tell me a little bit about what that is? So, the open call for applications uh, means that anyone around the world can apply for funding from one of our grants, and. The beauty of that is that we don't necessarily know what we're going to get. Last year's round, we solar, we uh, we powered solar powered boats in the Amazon. We powered a school for indigenous girls in Guatemala. We we funded a, a school in Liberia. It's like basically like rural agricultural projects in in uh, the mountains in India. Basically, you never really know where and how solar will be helpful for different communities. But but basically, they're good ideas coming popping up all over the world. We're just we're able to fund the ones that, that that we think are the best and the most likely to succeed. But we have, we get hundreds of applications and we only get to fund 10 to 20 uh, per season. And so, I mean, ideally we'd have a lot more money because then we could just fund all the projects. And, and you started this by essentially funding it entirely yourself, right? You gave away a large portion of your income. I think it was like a third of your income. And now it's it's grown beyond that. But, you know, what does that look like now? I mean, how does this organization continue to grow with your support, of course, as your name is on the organization, but um, not entirely dependent on it. That's actually an interesting aside. So when I started the foundation, I was giving 50K a year, and that was enough to fund two projects, depending on the scale of the projects. And last year, we raised 2.5 million, which was, was the biggest year we've ever had. It's crazy. And so that's 50 times what I started out doing as an individual. And to me, that's that sort of validation for having put my name on it, you know, is to make it the Honol Foundation and to make it a public thing, because I easily could have just continued to to donate 50K a year and, and maybe scale that up as I, as I started earning more. But realistically, I never would have been able to to donate 2.5 million a year. And to see that happen last year and, and to know that we're going to be able to fund a whole extra round of, of grants as a result, it's pretty satisfying. And if some little kid in some rural community is able to read after the sun sets because they have light for the first time in their hut. I'm like, that's a pretty legit legacy. You know what I mean? Like those are the types of projects that matter. That's just so rad, man. Uh, congratulations on all that you've built and you and the team are just doing such great work. I've been supporting for years. Everybody who's listening, I encourage you to check out Handel Foundation. They're doing it right. And now before I let you go, Alex, just one more thing. I want to take us back in time. June 3rd, 2017. 
that's a pretty big day for you and me in Yosemite Valley. I mean, you happen to be climbing the side of El Cap without a rope, and I happen to be celebrating my anniversary with my wife across the valley, hiking Vernal Falls, totally unaware that you were pulling off probably the most incredible thing in the history of sports. And here I am hiking freaking Vernal Falls. Uh, you know, Vernal, Vernal Falls is still quite lovely. That's, that's still a nice day. It was a good day. That's awesome. That, that's a, that's pretty classic. You were there that day. Huh? I was there that, that, that is our anniversary. June 3rd's our anniversary. You know, we were living in Los Angeles and like Yosemite is just obviously the most magical place on earth. Mm -hmm. And we're like, just up hiking around and had, and then didn't know until at the end of the day, you know, we get done and I finally like pull my phone out cause I had it away. It's like, you know, all the headlines and I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. I was like, he's probably having pizza around here somewhere. We got to find him. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. But here we are, yeah, full funny. circle. When you said the date like that, though, it makes me realize it's going to be the five-year anniversary this uh, this June. I, I am hoping to be in Yosemite this year, and I'm like, man, that makes me feel old. It's like, been five years already? That's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, I know how annoying the what's next question um, is for anyone, but I do think there's something to be said for us climbers. Like, when I, like, my wildest goal this season was to climb 12C, and I clipped chains, and I was like, you know, I lowered off. My buddies were like... You go in 12D now, you know, and like, it's just such a thing to be like, I, there's just something inherent about, about climbers. I think where we're constantly looking for the what next. Um, but I don't want to pose that question to you. I'd like to pose it in, in this way. No one could have ever imagined doing what you did on the free rider, but I'd like you to try as a thought experiment to think of what the most outrageous thing the next generation could do because there are some crushers out there like you said who are teenagers right now maybe some of them will be pushing in into 516 maybe some of them will be pushing the limits in free soloing what, what could be the most outrageous thing that that the next generation does in the world of solo climbing it's funny uh i mean you know obviously something like onside soloing you know, cap or onside soloing any of the walls in yosemite would be would be a big step up um, you know, some of the more remote big walls of the world, like the eternal flame, a triangular tower or something, um, like stuff in Pakistan, but that stuff is hard because yeah. conditions are so bad. Uh, I mean, I would say something insane, like soloing the fist traverse, except that Sean Villanueva did that last year. So, uh, you know, I was like, okay, well, that's, that's a whole different level. Actually, I, I sort of talked about this a little bit with, uh, with Peter Croft, I think on, uh, on my podcast, climbing gold, uh, last year. It was a little bit about like generational shifts and, and uh, shifts in vision. Because I think in some ways, like the definition of, of each generation of climbing is sort of uh, marked a little bit by what, what the generation has the vision to, to imagine. Like, you know, like I don't want to say that I'm, I'm too old and tapped out, but, but I have sort of, I don't want to say I've reached the edge of my vision, but, but, you know, I don't know if I can see that much further and it might take another generation of climbers to see what's, what's beyond. You know, because like I've been, I've been sort of looking ahead for, I don't know, 25 years I've been climbing and the 15 that I've been a professional climber. And I don't know, you know, it's like, I just don't see that much further. It's like, it might take somebody coming up in the sport now with a whole different set of skills and, and, and a much higher level of ability to, to see what's next. Wow. It's just so exciting to think about, you know, what, what this next generation of climbers will do as they build on the incredible work that that this generation has done, climbers like yourself and and other guests that um, we've been fortunate to have on the show here. Man, thank you so much for sharing your struggles and your breakthroughs, Alex. It's just been a pleasure, and I look forward to keeping in touch. No pleasure. Sorry, I've been rambling so long, but you know you're editing this anyway, so you cut it down as much as you need. <laughs> yeah, all this is going to get cut out. All my all my rambling about uh, about my anniversary and all that. <laughs> 
And that wraps up our chat with the biggest name in climbing. What'd y'all think of it? Let us know. You can find us on Instagram at Alex Honnold, at Ryan Devlin Outside, and at The Struggle Climbing Show. You know, Alex's perspective on slow and steady progress really resonated with me. With just consistent training and avoiding injury, we can all expect to get a letter grade better a year. And how sick is that? Also, I really appreciated Alex's take on fear and visualizing potential outcomes so that you don't get surprised when something goes sideways on the wall. I'm definitely going to implement more of that mental training into my routine. It is something that we can all do just like in the car or during the hike into the crag. And uh, lastly, I'm really inspired by the work that the Honnold Foundation is doing. Each one of their solar projects around the world tells a unique story. So please support their work if you can. This is something that all of us as climbers can really get behind. Shout out to Fizzy Vantage for being the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. If y'all want to level up your training and performance, and I know you do, check it out. Try their supercharged collagen to keep your fingers healthy and strong so that you can train and perform at your best. PhysiVantage is now available in Europe on the Epic TV online shop and in the U.S. at select gyms and, of course, at PhysiVantage.com. Hit that link in your show note or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. All right, that clips the anchors on this episode. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I spent a day climbing with Alex as well as Jordan Cannon recently up at Mount Potosi in Red Rocks. And guys, I'm barely a 512 climber, so I was obviously way out of my league with those two. But they were so supportive and so gracious. We did this monster rope swing off of the ledge where Alex talked me into on-siting the front flip. Uh, it was totally insane. Check it out on my Instagram for the video. You can also see Alex and Jordan taking the swing with far more grace than I did. Uh, and that right there just made it really a day to remember. But then the climbing and the hanging out, the cleaning up of the crag, the exchanging of beta, all of it was just so, so cool. So um, a favorite moment of mine was when um, I was belaying Alex on this new link up that he was working on. And at, at one point he had me take and he calls down and he says, hey, Ryan, what do you think I should do here? And I'm like, what in the hell do I know about giving Alex Honnold advice on climbing? But, you know, I went ahead and I, I shared my thoughts because that is what you do when you're climbing. And I just that's what I love so much about the climbing community. You can run into your heroes at the crag and maybe they'll give you a catch or share some beta. No big deal. Now, before I go, if you'd like to support the show and the climbers who make it, I would be so grateful for it. Swing on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show. Become a patron and you'll score yourself a limited edition aluminum travel mug slash can koozie, just like Alex and all of the guests of the show have. Keep your tea hot on the way to the crag and your can of suds cold after the send. It's super rad, but more importantly, your support keeps these blockbuster interviews going, so thank you. Now, if you can't support as a patron, no worries. I'll hook you up with a free sticker. How about that? Simply rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm working super hard on this and I would love to hear what you think. So post that review on Insta and tag at the Struggle Climbing Show and I will send you a super cool sticker free of charge. Slap it on your Nalgene, your stick clip, your van, or your forehead so that everyone knows that you love the struggle and the struggle loves you. All right, let's climb hard and do good things in the world. <laughs>